Jesus went throughout Galilee, as Beth's just read, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. News about him spread everywhere. People came to him, bringing people who were sick, diseased, demonized, and he healed and delivered every one of them. And so large crowds followed him across the wilderness. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain and sat down. Kind of invitation. People loved Jesus. They loved to be with him. And yes, it was mixed with all kinds of other motives. But people saw in Jesus the finger of God. They saw God come down to be with us and love us. And they were hungry for more. They wanted more. And sometimes when Jesus was in the middle of the crowd and they wanted something, he just walked away. In John's Gospel it says after he'd fed them in the wilderness and they wanted to make him king, he just walked away. He was having none of it. But here, he saw the hunger. He saw the heart. And so he went up a mountain and sat down to teach them. Now, why a mountain? And scholars have different ideas about this. Some people think Jesus was raising the bar. You know, do you really want to hear what I've got to say? Well, it's 2,000 metres up there. You know, it's kind of, do you really want it? Some people say, well, yes, there is probably a natural amphitheatre up there somewhere, you know, somewhere you could sit down and the acoustics would be really good. But maybe more thoughtful scholars say, well, Jesus is consciously and deliberately setting a parallel here with Moses, who went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and brought them down to the people. And he wanted, he wanted us to notice the difference. So no fire, no cloud, no terror, no, if even an animal gets near the mountain, it must be stoned. Just Jesus... Man and God sitting down, probably on a bit of outcrop of rock, and everybody all around him, and you probably could have heard a pin drop. And as you know, Jesus' basic message was repent and believe, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Change the way you think, change the way you act. But now he takes it a step further and develops it for people who have repented and have believed but it's not enough you want more and Jesus taught them about being hungry and how you get satisfied how you get food for your soul we know these um, eight kind of couplets as beatitudes they're followed by the rest of the sermon on the mount you're so blessed if you know that you are poor in spirit because then you can get rich 
if you mourn because you're not happy with the way the world is or the way you are, you are so blessed. And if you are pure in heart, if you are single-minded in wanting God and Jesus, if you are humble and teachable, you are so blessed, you are so happy. If you are hungry and thirsty for God, if your appetite is for God, you are so happy, you are so blessed. Because you know what? You're going to get satisfied to the full and to the depths of your being. And the next two chapters work all of that out. But I particularly want us to focus today on the being hungry and thirsty for righteousness and on being pure in heart. If you could put the next slide up, Steph, that'd be great. Because Jesus was speaking to people who were formed by the Old Testament, the covenant of Moses, as interpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And that was a very moralistic and rules and behaviour focused creed. It was all about do this, don't do that, live like this, don't live like that. God will like you if you do this, God will not like you if you do that, so do this, don't do that. And Jesus changed the conversation so that it was primarily about the heart. So the Ten Commandments say don't murder people. And Jesus says, well, that's fine. And, you know, as far as it goes, yes, don't murder people. Didn't take anything away from that. But where does murder come from? Look inside. Deal with your anger. And all eight of those Beatitudes are primarily about the heart, primarily about what's in our hearts and what kind of flows over us. And so when we're looking at satisfying our hunger and being pure in heart, we can actually come at it from two different ends. We can focus on behaviour and sins that contaminate or pollute, or we can focus on what God has done in us and who we are and how he calls our hearts and our attention and our love and our energy towards him. And through the centuries in church life, the behaviour has very much been at the front. I think it seems to be a, a factor of Christian streams and communities that we, we have a kind of pull towards the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. We just can't quite help it. I'm not trying to be unkind. And... Um, you know, it's fair enough because Jesus makes it very clear that what you do matters. Not only that, but what you do reveals what is in your hearts. As he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and you know the tree by the fruit. Good tree, good fruit, and so on. So it's fair enough. And uh, for centuries, this is how worship started in the Church of England. We would all say the confession together, and I'm going to just read it. It's been updated now, but I'm just going to read it as I said it as a child and young adult. 
Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And then the minister would pray a prayer of absolution. Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in life everlasting. And that is a good prayer. I'm not knocking it. The modern version is still pretty standard across the churches, and you know maybe we should use it rather more than we do. And worship began like this, so that we would be in no doubt when we approach God how much we need his forgiveness, how much it is that Jesus did for us on the cross. After praying a prayer like that, it's very hard to approach God with an attitude of entitlement. It's very hard to kind of think that God owes you after you've prayed a prayer like that. And not only that, but if you come with a huge sense of guilt and shame, you know, which I do from time to time, oh God, you know, I've messed up, I've been really mean to Anne, you know, or or reversed my car into something, or, you know, something like that, and that I'm really upset about. That prayer is where I am, that's where I start. Have mercy on me, God, and, and kind of hearing those words of forgiveness is actually really helpful, although I didn't like the bit about truly repent, because I never really know if I truly repented or not. You know, and since when I said it next week, I would almost certainly be asking forgiveness for the very same selfishness and so on that I'd had to say sorry for the week before. I, you know, is that true repentance? If you have to repent every week? For this? You know, I didn't know. So there was always that kind of niggle about whether I'm actually, you know, have I really, if I'm coming back, is that really, is that true repentance? That what, you know, that was going on for me. But it is interesting that as Jesus is teaching, he very rarely starts from that end of blessed are the pure in heart. Now you'd, you'd be pushed to find a sermon, a story, a parable of Jesus that starts kind of from that end. I'm not saying he doesn't address it, of course he does, but, but you won't find much in Jesus, you won't find much in the Sermon of the Mount that starts from that particular end of pure in heart. It's much more like, you know, if you were an arrow, which way would you be pointing? You know, if you, if you could keep just one thing in all your life, you know, what, would, what would it be? 
It's, it's much more like that than, well, let's start with your behavior. He starts with, after all, how happy you will be if you live like this. How happy you will be if you live like this. If you're poor in spirit and hungry, you are so happy. You're so blessed. And this teaching was given before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ascension and the day of Pentecost, of course. But it's given for after those things as well. The promise of the Spirit was going to be fulfilled. In those days, said the prophet Joel, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. On my servants, both women and men, I will pour out my Spirit, says the Lord, in those days. And Ezekiel, reflecting on the old covenant and how people had just trashed it, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a soft heart, a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. When you turn to Jesus something inside you changes. It's, it's not just kind of your legal spiritual identity that changes. Something inside you changes. It doesn't matter whether it was a particular moment or whether you grew up and you chose Jesus as you grew older, bit by bit by bit. It doesn't matter. When you turn to Jesus the deepest part of you, the innermost part of you changes. Something is changed inside. Something has happened. The theological word for it is regeneration. Jesus talked about, it's like you got born all over again. You're not the same. And in that bit that's different... Because it's different, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the death, comes and lives with you in the deepest part of you. So you don't have to worry about whether your love for Jesus is genuine or not. I sometimes find myself thinking when I'm singing, do I really mean that? You know, especially if it's a hymn like All to Jesus I Surrender, I'm thinking, do I really mean that? You know, is it true? Do I really, you know, I've got that little voice. It's not really true, Peter. But I don't have to worry about that. Because it's not based on how I feel or how strong my commitment is today or how consistently I live or how far I've yet been transformed to look like Jesus or how far there is yet to go. It doesn't depend on that at all because there's something in me that has changed. It's different now. And right in the core of my spirit and my being, God has made 
his home and he calls me his. So I don't have to work it up. I don't have to feel anything. I don't have to, you know, do I, re- I don't have to do any of that because I'm just his and he owns me. We live in a culture that's not very spiritually aware. One of the flattest cultures has ever been in terms of kind of awe, imagination, creativity, wonder, just that sense of of the other and a different realm. But people who do have that awareness, and there are some, can 99 times out of 100 tell whether you belong to Jesus just by looking at you because it's there in your face. And for that perspective, pure in heart is about making space for what is deepest in us. Because the thing is, what's deepest is not the same as what's strongest. Because we all have those primal drives, you know, those things about survival and protecting ourselves and all of those. And they've all been, they all share in the brokenness of the fall. So they're all disordered and they're all churning away inside. And sometimes they are by far the loudest voice in our head. And sometimes they overwhelm us. Because the deepest thing is not always the strongest thing in the moment. So pure in heart is about making space for what is already inside you. The deepest bit, the bit that will live forever. And of course, I mean, I would have loved to have been, wouldn't you, just love to have been with Jesus in that natural amphitheatre, if that's what it was. You know, with the so quiet, you couldn't hear, a, you could hear a pin drop, because it's Jesus. And to have heard those words, and, you know, if I wanted to be prayed for, I could just, you know, I could just go up and, you know, it would be Jesus but he knew that the people listening were going to have to go home. You always have to go home. You know, whether you come here to worship or you're on a retreat or you're lucky enough to be in a job that will give you a sabbatical or, you know, even if you're just on holiday, you have to go home. It's built into humanity that you have to go home. And if you try and rebel against it, that doesn't work either because if you stay on holiday, it stops being holiday. It's just how we are. Jesus knew that the people would have to go home. And these things are to take with you when you do go home. Because guilt or shame can drive you away. Apathy and neglect can put you to sleep. Disappointment and hurt can cloud your eyes so you can't see. But who you are does not change. And you are his if you're here and you've said yes to Jesus. Who you are does not change. In the deepest part of you, God has put his spirit and he owns you. 
And every spiritual being in the universe can see that. It's in your face. It's in your eyes. So pure in heart is making space for what is deepest to come out and form you and change you and rule in you more than it does today. And hunger to be pure in heart is prioritizing that. It's very interesting if you go right back to the beginning, the very first thing that God did for us. The very first thing. Now, before there was the fall, when everything was beautiful and fantastic and there was no pain in, in loving or serving, there was no cost really. You just go with the flow. Um, when it was still true, if it feels good, do it. You know, back to that day, God still gave us, even then, one thing to do. And uh, when Genesis was written down, all the other nations on the face of the earth had sacred places. You know, this ziggurat, or this tree, or this mountain, or this river or spring, or whatever it was, or this impressive building, they all had places. But in the beginning, God did not create a sacred place for us. He created a sacred time. And even before the fall, let's think about this, even when you could say, if it feels good, do it, and you would be right all the time, even then, God thought it was important that we had a sacred time. Not a place, a time. A day that was all about celebrating him and his presence and what we have rather than what we haven't got and enjoying intimacy with him and each other and just stopping so that the deepest bit of us could come out and form the rest of us. Now, if we needed that before the fall... Just think about how much we need it now. That time when we stop and let what is deepest come out and begin to shape us and form us. So this is kind of the takeaway. How is Sabbath working out for you? Not everyone can do Sunday. I don't do Sunday. My my Sabbath is Friday. Not everybody can do 24 hours in the same day. I mean, the ancient Israelites didn't do that. They did sunset to sunset. That's not the issue. The issue is, is there Sabbath in your life? You know, when you just stop, when you don't shop because you want to be glad for what you already have rather than think about what you don't yet have. You know, when you don't kind of churn through social media or binge on Netflix all day or you know when you just stop and remember who you are and who you are with God and how the deepest bit of you is his and he owns you and uh, if you know when you remember that if the enemy's that little voice about how well you're doing has been kind of gnawing on your spirit all week, you just slap it down 
And you say, you know what? All those things are true and more beside. But I'm his and he owns me and he calls me by name. Because that is being pure in heart. Because that is being an arrow that is pointing to Jesus. Because what you're doing is saying, more important than my work, more important than my jobs, more important than my home, you know, everything else that's going on, more important than any of those things is just stopping and remembering that I am his and he loves me and that that is the biggest thing I have in my life. And it's not really about rules, you know, things you can and can't do. Those can be helpful or not, but they, they shouldn't drive a time like that. It's just about making the space. So just, just as I finish, how are you doing with your Sabbath time? Just have some time with the Holy Spirit. And uh, again, this is not going to be a condemnation thing. You might not have any Sabbath at all ever. This might be the kind of the first time you've actually thought about doing something like that. That's absolutely fine. In fact, that's fantastic. Because all you're going to ask the Holy Spirit is, what for me is the next step? Where I am now, at my life stage, you know, it's not much point talking about Sabbath rest if you've got three children under five. You know, Sabbath rest is a prayer you pray while you're changing a nappy, isn't it? If, you're, if that's where you are. But what's the next step for me in my life now? Just, let's just take a, a minute with the Holy Spirit. God, thank you that our sins are forgiven and we are yours. And Lord, in each of our lives, would would the arrow that is our main focus point more directly to Jesus? Whatever you've spoken to us in the quiet, may we have the courage and the grace to put it into practice.